Purpose Highway is a space for discussions that drive connections toward people's highest purpose to build a better self and a better world. Join me for season one, where I start to uncover stories of entrepreneurs and thinkers that are making an impact. I'm your host, Scott Mason, and enjoy today's episode. Welcome to another episode of Scott Mason's Purpose Highway Podcast. It's good to have everybody back. We have as our very special guest today, the one and only Josh Skyer. Josh is a New York City surfer. Yes, such things do exist. And he's a professional martial artist who's been living his best life since the very day he was born. He is the founder of the Fitness Collective Group, the New York City Beach House. He's a partner in Brooklyn J Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And he is the principal of Skyer Real Estate Holdings, as well as many other energetic projects. He holds a passion for thinking big when it comes to compassion, empathy, and generosity, and his work reflects that, which is why he's walking with us on the Purpose Highway today. And with a lot of enthusiasm, I welcome you, Mr. Josh Skyer. Hello, everybody. <laughs> so, Josh. One of the things I find fascinating about that bio is that it reflects a strong sense of purpose. Now, I know enough about your prior life to know that you didn't just pop out of your womb one day, owning a real estate mini empire throughout New York City and being a professional martial artist, that there was literally a highway that was unusually twisted and curvy and, and had lots of turns to get you where you are living this best life. Talk to us a little bit about your journey from the little kid, Josh Skyer, to the person that you became today that is living a purpose-filled life so that those in the audience who might be thinking about what their own purpose might be can maybe get some guidance or some thinking about about that for themselves. Oh, excellent. You know, I'll, I'll spare you with the little kid, Josh Skyer. Uh, uh, he was a wild kid who basically drove everybody crazy, uh, same as as an adult. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I have uh, been a fitness professional, uh, a martial artist now, heading up to about 20 years in the making um, with several uh, gym uh, gyms, boutique style gyms that have come and gone and martial arts schools and all kinds of exciting projects. Um, uh, most recently past, I don't know, five, six years, um, we've been invest investing a lot in real estate and growing that uh, in all asset classes of real estate, as well as growing uh, our, our, our beloved martial arts dojo. Um, it has been, you know, you said walking on that, that purpose highway, we've been flying. Uh, and crashing and burning and flying again and crashing and burning and uh, going through everything that that it takes to stay connected to uh, my overall purpose of what I think is my purpose. I know what it's not. And it's not writing bios about myself. That's for sure. I learned that about 15 minutes before the podcast when I was hacking away at a, a bio. <laughs> Well, talk to me a little bit about perhaps the most unexpected turn that your life has taken professionally as you've moved towards your purpose. Yeah, you know, I I um, became a, a, a landlord, which is completely out of character of what I thought it would be. I'm a martial artist, 
right? I am, I, I was put on this planet to help people, uh, whether it be fitness, whether it be emotionally, and I use fitness and the martial arts as, as the vehicle. Um, I never imagined that that would coexist in real estate investing and actually landlording. But in fact, it, there are so many parallels, uh, too many to mention. And really the main one that I find that I try to connect myself to is like being of service to others, right? People think of a, a professional martial artist as somebody who trains all day, who chops people's throats, who, you know, is like only about themselves and about the training for themselves and studying and sharpening their sword. But really, when you dig into it and, and you, you, you talk to more professionals and you really take a hard look at it, it, it has so much more to do with developing other people, right? The, the development of others is your development as a professional martial artist at a high level, at least in my opinion. And what I have found is that there is a, there is a space for that in in real estate. The real estate is the real estate. It's walls, roof, and a floor. But it's the people that inhabit your real estate, the students that inhabit your dojo. That is the opportunity. And those are the people that you have an opportunity to serve. And that is- That's interesting. And we're gonna talk about in a minute, this concept of being a real estate developer and actually caring about people. Now, I don't know about the rest of the country. I would not necessarily associate in the city of New York, at least, the words real estate developer with concern (laughs) for others. That's a novel concept to my ears. And we'll absolutely talk about that. But I I want to actually, (laughs) and I think people will be very interested to hear about that. I am curious to go a little bit further back, though. I'm going to bust out one of your secrets yeah. because we have this in common. In the nineties, we were both club kids. Oh yeah. And Guilty. I would say at least my experience as a club kid was not one where I was out <laughs> at raves or gigantic discos with concern for others on my mind. It was more <laughs> about having a good time. For myself, you were even more heavily in that world than I was. Yet somehow you ended walking down a path into a field like the martial arts that, as you said, is extraordinarily other-centered. Talk to us a little bit about your life as a club kid. Paint a picture for us as to what your day-to-day in the world was or the nights were like. And then how did that go into being a martial artist and being someone that contrary to stereotype, isn't just going around kicking other people's asses, yeah. living to serve. Well, it's, it's funny you brought that up. I, w- I was wondering uh, whether or not we, sh- we should talk about that. And I tell you, if you were uh, in that scene in the, the, the 90s and you survived and you're still alive, like you deserve some type of trophy. I mean, if you're still functioning as an adult after living through that, if you're not, you know, completely insane, it is an accomplishment. And I, I'll tell you, my life in that uh, realm wasn't that much different than my life after that realm. And I, I, really one of the connecting factors for that was the people around you. And really, if, if, 
if you were kind of around in those days and if you remember the Wild West, um, the New York City clubs in the 90s and early 90s, you, you, you remember that like your clique was everything and your crew was everything. And the people around you were, were equally as important as the music you were listening to, the club, all of it. It was, and especially for me, it was that those clubs turned into, you know, substitute families for a lot of those people. And there was a time of which people felt a level of freedom in those nightclubs that wasn't quite yet accepted outside of them. Why do you think they needed these substitute families? I think everyone, everyone's road, everyone's road to the limelight started in a different spot, right? Uh, uh, I, I haven't had a great family, I, you know, to say that, like, I had no parents and no loved ones and around me. And that's why I, you know, I, I linked up with other pierced individuals in the club as a sense of family would be a little bit untrue, right? It wasn't, I had people around me constantly, a huge loving family. That's not what brought me there, but there, that is what brought others there. I think it was just a sense of being accepted in a form of, of rebellion. I actually think that um, the same demographic that was mm -hmm. obsessed with that uh, back in those days have actually turned even a little bit into political activists mm. today. The younger mm. 20, 19, 18, 19, 20, 25 year old political activists, those were like the the people in the nightclubs when I was that age <laughs> um, and even younger, which I find to be an incredible thing. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe a little bit more productive. <laughs> so how then did that turn into a through line into your martial arts practice? And for those that might be interested in martial arts practices, but don't know a lot about it, do you believe that martial arts as you practice it, in particular Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, um, is consistent across the board? Or is that something that is unique to the practice area of the group of individuals that you have created your organization with? I think that it's all about the culture of which the 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 place of which you practice right i think there are many different cultures in the martial arts there are many different ways of which people express themselves in that and uh i, I don't think any are are wrong or i don't think any are right i just think they are what they are and you know i wound up in a very unique martial arts environment but i i, I tell you what what really kind of brought me out of that was it, it it's a very unhealthy lifestyle nightclubs and kind of that world or at least it was for me how so i mean i i, I was djing at you know I, the limelight uh other places uh just random kind of club events and you're 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 showing up at five in the morning in front of a drugged out mob blowing smoke in your face, like just kind of feeding off of that while it is incredibly fun, right? To like turn a little knob and to have like 3000 people go fucking crazy. Little the knobs this big, you go boom. And this thing explodes and all these people are going nuts. It's an incredible feeling that I wish everybody got to feel. Um, but what you have to do to get there and like the, you have to be in it. You have to be, 
you have to be in that world. And, you know, there's, there's drugs, there's alcohol, there's, I mean, other much worse stuff than that happening. And I'm not going to get into detail with that, but for me, I realized right then and there, like, and I had been training, I had been a very fit person. The two didn't match for me, (laughs) right? Like you're not like, you know, DJing from four 30 in the morning till six and then going out running. Like it's a completely different world for me. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, I, I realized at some point that um, if I was to stay in that, in that uh, line of work or that kind of that world, it would be an unhealthy decision for me physically, for my body, which I think is very important for people to always maintain their health, right? Your health, your body, you're not getting another one. You're not getting another shot at this. So to not, to not keep that as a, as a primary focus uh, for me at this point now is, is baffling and why people would, would not kind of focus on their health. I don't quite always understand. So you got into real estate. Yes. I I don't understand. This makes no sense to me. And I'm sure I'm the only person that's just like, who is this man? Martial (laughs) artist and former club kid to real estate developer. Something doesn't compute. Do the math for us, Josh. It was, it was an accident. You know, I had started a, a, I had started a, a boutique personal training uh, uh, facility, a small gym, we'll call it in Brooklyn. And I had a bunch of partners and they were, you know, lovely at the, at the time and things were going very well. And like all good things, we grew, we grew, we grew. And I think we grew out of our partnership and the, the old story, I was bought out uh, and everything kind of ended somewhat smoothly. Uh, you know, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll keep that on record, right? We don't need to air all the dirty laundry on them. We got to save something for the other, for the next part. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, and about four or five years later, at that point, I had, I said, fully dedicated myself to the martial arts, teaching living, working 24 seven, nothing else. And, um, out of the blue, literally six, seven years later, I get a phone call from, uh, one of my former partners who said, look, I, I, I have this space. It's a, it was a commercial condo. It was like a 980 square foot commercial condo in, in, in Cobble Hill. He said, I got to get out of here. It's not working for me. I can no longer train my, it was, he built it out as a gym. I can no longer train my clients. I don't want to be with people. I just, I need out. Would you like to purchase this place from me? And I said, purchase this place from me. What the hell are you talking about? Purchase. I I knew nothing, right? Purchase a building. I don't even, that was like beyond my, you know, I had purchased a home, but to then lost, but I, you know, part of what I think my purpose is, uh, I, I, I enjoy, I'm like an adrenaline person. I enjoy adrenaline. I enjoy, uh, uh, risks. I'm, you know, I think that they're like hunters and gatherers and processors, people that hunt people that go out and for lack of better terms, I'm sorry, vegetarians and PETA and vegans, people that go out there and kill the animals and drag them home. And then once the animals are home, there's a whole separate group of people who then cut the animals up and distribute them and cook them and hand them out. And I'm 
like on the first side, like the hunter, like the, the adrenaline of, of, of finding. So I said, yeah, I'll buy this building. No money, no, like no financing lined up. Of course, I'll buy it. you're calling the right guy. Hang on the phone. Shit. Okay. Now what do I do? Um, it was a good thing I didn't. Well, what the first thing you know you do is you, you call an attorney. Um, and to make a long story short, uh, we almost went through with the purchase. Only there was only one like little challenge that arose in the purpose in, in, in the transaction was that the person who was trying to sell me the building didn't actually own the building. And the person was dumb enough to like CC the actual owner on this email correspondence of which we were going through the specs of the building. Oh my. <laughs> and I get an email from some guy in China who says, you know, he doesn't own the building. I do. If you buy from him, I sue you. And I sue him. Love. That was the email. <laughs> love. Uh, love. <laughs> love. Okay. Well, then there was my first uh, taste of real estate. People trying to screw you from every angle around. And right then and there, I, 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 you know, I knew that's not, that's not me. That's not what I, you know, it, it butts right up against being a sensei being a martial artist like there has there's one one way and it's it's honesty and compassion and really just sticking to your personal not violating your own personal mm -hmm. principles so randomly about a year later i get another uh, so the deal's dead done okay i get another i get another email from the same guy from china hey still interested in buying a, a store uh, five partners, all fighting, need to sell, or we sue each other. Great price, love, sent. <laughs> so then here's this other thing. And what happens? The adrenaline spikes. Boom! Oh, what? Five people, great price, China fighting? Yes, this is me. <laughs> Let's do this. So that was my kind of, uh, my, my, my di first dive in. And uh, really, um, a couple months later, we closed at an incredibly low price. I, I put it, I didn't put it, uh, I don't like to use the word lowball offer. I put it an offer that I could actually afford. And it was accepted, first shot. And literally a couple of weeks later, everything checked out. There's always, there's always little things that happen and mm -hmm. violations and all kinds of little, the little intricacies of, of a real estate transaction in New York City. But we closed. So holy shit, now I have this kind of warehousey type of place in Brooklyn. Now what? Uh, what can I do? And I remember very clearly in that moment, it's, I, I had to kind of adjust my thinking. It wasn't what, what can I do? Uh, I changed it to who can I help? Mm. Who needs this space? Mm. Who, 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 like, you know, you used to go to a concert outside of Madison Square Garden. And right, and there used to be that one guy walking around. I got one ticket. I'm gonna make somebody's right. night. I of got course. one. I'm your angel. I got that one ticket. Or there used to be the guy at the in front of the nightclub, right? The guy used to stand in front of Twilo. Yeah. You don't come in. You don't come in. Yep. Yeah, you can go in. You're cool. Yep. Yep. I don't know why, but I guess I'm cool. Yeah. So, who who was I gonna be, right? Who I'm gonna be that guy for that person? Who? And long story short. 
we had a real estate developer come in and it was an incredible thing. I don't think they stepped foot in the place. They just, he needed it to comply with some kind of local law. Uh, he was a big time developer building million dollar condos around the corner. And there's a law apparently that you have to have a showroom off site if you're going to sell real estate. And he built out this space into what a $2 million studio apartment in Brooklyn would look like and paid the rent for a couple of years. I don't think he ever stepped foot in it once. And I got a taste for helping people in that all the time I'm teaching every day. I'm working with students. I'm, I'm developing myself. And I said, you know, this is something that I'd like to, I'd like to expand on and fast forward. Here we are. But how does a real estate mogul <laughs> help people? Good. I don't know. But when I meet a real real estate mogul, we'll get him on the podcast. Um, I think really my purpose in that area um, came a couple of years later. So from that, you grow and you refinance and you purchase another place and you refinance, you purchase another place or you gather. So down the road, uh, I wound up in the multifamily space. Uh, all while teaching, all while dedicated my family, my students, and uh, so a multifamily. This was a three a three door unit, three three family home, and I got introduced to somebody who uh, was into the Section Eight program. And what's the uh, Section Eight program? So the Section Eight program, which has a, an awful rap by the way, people loathe it. You say it and some people get very angry when I really, I actually find it to be wonderful, not only for the, for, for everybody. Um, Section 8 program is, you know, there are, there, there's people who are of a certain income level can qualify for what they call a housing choice voucher, where essentially they get some federal or local government assistance on paying their rent. Uh, that is the Section 8 program. So if you qualify for it, you, you get a voucher, which covers a portion of your rent. It's one of the many programs uh, in these cities. Now, they, there are some phenomenal programs going on. And the moment I, I, I started learning more about these programs, it became very clear that to me, right, other people look at these programs as like, you know, cash producing and nothing else. It's very clear to me that there are a lot of people in desperate need of housing in the in this city, New York City, and in all cities. And what makes it even worse is there are a lot of other, co my cohorts in real estate, not my cohorts, and other people who are very greedy and very almost uh, uh, shady, very, it's only a financial endeavor for them, only could care less about helping people. And when you have these two groups, desperate people looking for housing and desperate people on the other way, desperate to, to take your money, you get this thing of which landlords then may become predators. And I'll share with you a story about my first experience with this. So I, you know, the first program we linked up with was an incredible program, which works with uh, uh, men who are in final stages of um, HIV AIDS. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. what they do is they pay their rent to kind of ease their transition um, mm -hmm. for the rest of their natural life. And it's an incredible thing. Um, 
The second program that I started working with was just a standard Section 8. But in the Section 8 program, there are a lot of people in what we call the shelter system. Yep. New York City, which is a, I mean, we could do a whole separate podcast about that. I'm not going to. The shelters you're talking about, just so everyone understands, are homeless shelters. Homeless shelters, yes. Also have a horrible rap, right? Which kind of rubs me sometimes, right? I don't want you pro. How could you protest? a shelter for a homeless person while sitting in your home on your computer. I mean, it's, there are a lot of, there are a lot of, uh, and don't get me fired up on the shelter system and, and you know, the things that happen there. But so I met a woman who was in a shelter um, or who has recently left a shelter. And part of the process here for me was before I move somebody into the house, I want to learn about them. Because I want to help mm-hmm. the right people in the right situations. Right. And so it's a little bit of an unorthodox approach, but I go out of my way to visit where they're currently living. Uh, I visited the shelters mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I, uh, this particular case in this story, it was a young woman. I visited the, her next space out of the shelter. I believe for some of these programs to qualify it, you have to live in the shelter for six to eight months, or I don't know the exact amount of time, you have to live in the shelter in order to then get this voucher of which you can get some assistance in paying your rent. Gotcha. Um, So this was her first place out of the shelter. And I did a little bit of a background check, right? In, in a a kind of an, it is what it is. Part of this, this world here is you have to look into people before you move them into them for the safety of yourself. Remember Mm -hmm. you have other tenants, you have other neighborhood, other, other neighbors. I want to help them well, I want these properties to increase. I don't want them to, to cause trouble. Right. So I looked into this one woman and there was a, uh, an eviction and you know, the, there was a judgment and an eviction, I believe it was called a forced entry. Uh, I forget the legal term. And right off the bat, all my, my real estate mentors, everybody was like, nope, there's an eviction, stay away. There's an eviction, stay away. And then I, you know, got hit with the ethical dilemma. I had already met this woman. She, when I met her, she was lovely. Um, she had two small children. She was unable to work because by working, uh, for those unfamiliar, and this is part of the, these programs that blows my mind is that, you know, you could actually lose your your health, you can actually lose your voucher by working. So if you earn above a certain amount, your portion of your rent goes up. But what is the job that you're getting? Right? What is like, are you gonna actually get a job that's gonna that's gonna produce enough rent to pay rent in New York City? And it's it's a cycle that can't be broken. Yeah, yeah. So I was hit with this dilemma. I was like, I really want to help this woman. She doesn't need to go get thrust back into a shelter with her children. She has an eviction pending on the place she's living now. She has to get out eventually. And so I, against, again, against a lot of people's advice, even my own advice to myself, you know, safety wise, I went to, I went to where she was living and I rolled up and I called her from out front and asked for a meeting. She invited me in. And I, I said, listen, 
you know, explain to me about this eviction. What happened? What's going on here? Right. Every instinct is telling me, you know, this is not going to end well. God only yeah. knows why. What's happening? Uh, I, I get emotional even thinking about it. And then she got incredibly emotional. And she said, follow me. Again, the martial artist in me was like, there's an open window. Jump out of it. Get to your wow. car. Get yeah. out of here. Yeah. I don't know who was in that room. I don't know what I was walking into. Yeah. Right. I probably shouldn't have been in her home anyway without, you know, by myself at night. Um, she said, come here. I'll show you. You'll show me. I did not know what to, what do you have somebody chained up in that room? Uh, what's going on here? That's where my imagination's going. Yeah, what is going on? And so I follow her and she takes me into the bathroom. And now I'm like, dude, get the fuck out of here. Don't follow this woman into a bathroom. What's going on in the bathroom here? What is going like every negative scenario went through my mind. But I don't I don't know. You know, I like my adrenaline was going. I was like in that adrenalized moment. I went in the bathroom. She pulled back the shower curtain and behind the shampoo bottles, there was a piece of tape on a tile. And I was like, in my, then I started going, oh my God, is she being evicted because she broke a tile? Is this what this, all this is about? Yeah. And I was like, that's, that's insanity. She lifts up the tape from the tile and there's a hole of which you can see outside. And I'm so fucking confused. I'm like, what, what on earth, what is going on here? Did you, why did you make a hole in this guy's, I mentioned, I, you know, I thought like the landlord, why'd you bust a hole in this guy's bathroom? Right? There's a fan like, yeah. Trying to be rational. And she was like, that's where he goes outside when he spies on me when I'm in the shower. I, I couldn't, I couldn't believe my eyes. She got thrust into a homeless shelter for a year. Finally gets on her feet, has somebody accept her voucher, gets put in an apartment. And what does this landlord do? He drills a hole from the outside and he, he, he peeps on her while she's naked in the shower. And she was like, when I called him on it and I reported him and I reported it to Section 8, I reported it on the police, he started threatening to kill me. And then he filed the eviction. Without even tell, without even asking me to leave, he just went through eviction notice processes, and I was like, "Oh my God, I can help this person. Mm -hmm. I can get you the fuck up out of here tonight, and we could I, against all instinct. I don't care if you don't have money for a security deposit. I don't care if you." You have, you have to pay your portion of the rent in two. I, I, like right now, I don't care. We'll sort all that out. And it's been nothing but a wonderful experience with her and actually with people in these programs since that moment. I said, who else is out there? 
Who's in a shelter who is the, going from a shelter to a slum house? Who else has got a landlord that sets up cameras in the some sick sicko who's spying on them in the bathroom on the toilet? And there are people. And then there are, there are other people like myself, like you, Mr. Mason, who were put on this world to help, to serve these people. And that, that is what I chase. Not ROI, not, not my, you know, not my, my return, not my CapEx, not none of that real estate bullshit talk. Who, who needs the help? Who needs, who needs the help? And above her and below her are two other families in similar situations that I put in that house. And once I started doing this, I realized that there are thousands, thousands of people with nowhere to go, limited options. And then there are thousands on the other side of these landlords that will get these people into homes borderline abuse them to get that, to get that rent check and then to leave them for dead. And in that moment, I realized whether it be getting somebody out of a, a shelter, whether it be getting somebody out of a bad situation into a good situation, right? Whether it be me as a, as a professional martial artist where somebody walks in the dojo and says, I've been beaten by my husband and I need you to help me defend myself which happens more times than you wish to know. It's all the same. It is all the same. The mission is the same, right? The service to other people. Here's how I like to look at it. That you, you, you try to make their problems yours, but you're very careful to not make your problem theirs. Mm. And that's, that is service. That's what living a life of service is. I'll say it again. You, their problems, their issues, what they're going through, they become yours. Mm -hmm. And you work them through it together. Mm -hmm. But yours, and Lord, Lord knows I have, we all get, we all, they, we don't then turn them, turn them on them. Well, it's interesting that you say that because service and a commitment to that can so often put our problems in perspective. That's right. You know, um, a few years ago, there was discovered a mole on my foot that was problematic and it had to be removed and then more tissue had to be removed. Now, fortunately, all of the tissue that was removed um, was all of the tissue that needed to be removed. And so that issue has gone away. But during that period, I was invited to go to a special event that you actually hosted that we'll talk about in a moment sure. that um, required that I be out in the sun. And I remember being very, very concerned about being in the sun that day because of this issue with the skin around that mole in my foot. But I put on tons of sunscreen. <laughs> I kept on, you know, um, you know, socks, <laughs> no, no sun at all would touch my feet. And I was there that entire day and it put my problem in profound perspective, right? you know the event I'm talking about. And yeah. I was wondering if you could maybe talk to us a little bit about what that event was, why you do it, and maybe just a quick story about what that means to people that are there, if you yeah, know any such story. You know, so uh, 
to say that it's my event would be a little bit of a stretch. Uh, it's an event that you have sponsored uh, yeah. the students at your school, though. Yeah, I might, like, be, I might be one of the DJs, but it, it's not my party entirely. Yeah. <laughs> yep, um, gotcha. And so what I do is I put together a, a team. Well, let's talk about the event. It's called Life Rolls On. It was founded by an incredible uh, 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 surfer um, named Jesse, uh, who uh, is also in a wheelchair due to a surfing accident. And really what we do at these events is we take other people who happen to be disabled uh, uh, in various forms. We take them surfing and we, we get them in the water. We get them in wetsuits. We get them in the water. We get them on surfboards. It takes about, I mean, one day we counted, it, it took about uh, 60 of us to get one person in the ocean from off the van into the wetsuit it, from mm -hmm. one chair, from wheelchair into onto a table, onto another wheelchair and like all the planning, the coordinate, literally 60 people. And then once we get them in the ocean, which, you know, takes no prisoners, uh, uh, yeah. there's another 40 people waiting in the ocean. And then we get them, we got to get them on a wave and we get them riding waves. And uh, it, this is an incredible, it's an incredible event. It's not the only one. There are a lot of other organizations that do things like this. Uh, this one is called Life Rolls On. It's pretty incredible. And it's in, it was important to me. I'll tell you the first, the very first one that we did, the very first person that we got very first athlete that we got that we got to take in the water i was talking to them and out of the blue she said you want to know how i wound up in the chair and i was like oh, are we allowed, are we supposed yeah. to talk about <laughs> yeah I, uh, yeah yeah okay. discomfort time right <laughs> yeah and i was like they obviously wanted to talk about it so i sure and she, not knowing me not knowing the, the, you know, 40 other martial artists that were around me. I still have chills when I talk about this. She looks at me and she looks at the points of the wheelchair and says, martial arts accident. Wow. I was like, Pleh! like my heart sunk. Wow. I, yeah. I couldn't process it yeah. in the moment, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, she was like judo. And I was like, Whoa. I, we were, I was doing judo with all these people last night. Judo. And sure enough, we got them out there. Uh, we got them on the surfboard. We got them on a wave. We ate shit. We wiped out. We had to do a little rescue. And it was an incredible time. And I afterwards went back to this person. And I said, what? why do you do this? Like, why do you love this so much? I, I, I know why, because it's, it's incredible. I love it too. I surf every day. Like, I love it. What, like, what draws you to this? I said, despite what all these people are telling you, this is not safe. And she looked at me and she said, bingo. She said, everything I do from the moment I wake up, to the moment that catheter is inserted in my body every morning, 
to the moment I go to sleep, which I can't really sleep because I have, she explained something that she has. She doesn't really sleep much. Everything is safe. Everything from padding to maneuvering the way people talk to me, the way people touch me, the way people act around me. Everyone is so safe and worried about my safety and my well-being and my emotions and how they talk. And she said, not you guys. She said, you, you pushed me into that wave knowing damn well I could have been killed. And I was like, guilty. <laughs> this is true. And she said, that's why I love it. There's a freedom here. You're not, nobody's, it's not, if, if everything was safe, I'd be on the bus with a fan watching you do this on TV. So that level of danger is what is why I'm here. I'm free. I'm free. I, I, I'm legitimately do not remember my predicament while I'm doing this with you crazy bastards is what she said. And I was like, boom, that there it is. There it is. Like, you know, yes, it's, yes, it's great. Yes. It's, it's rewarding. Uh, but really what I think is great about it for them is that it's a little bit dangerous. And anytime you leave land and enter the ocean, you're putting yourself in danger. I don't, I don't care how proficient you are. The ocean doesn't care. A two foot way, a wave this tall could break your back. Uh, and that's why she keeps coming back. And from that moment on, every year, we put together a team of volunteers. Uh, we'll be, sadly, it was canceled this summer due to the pandemic, but hopefully we'll be back up and running next summer. And we put ourselves of service to these athletes, these people, and we put them in some danger. And we do our best to make sure they don't drown as well as ourselves. But we serve them in that moment. And there's no, no greater joy, really. Like the joy you have when, when giving it all is for another person is it, you can't compare it. And it's all part of this, this greater mission that I like to focus on is how can I give to others? How can I make their problems or help them through their problems, take their, the, whatever they're working through, but not give them what I'm working through in that moment. Right. I didn't, I didn't talk back to this person and I was like, man, you know, yeah, you, you know, we had a hurricane here. And I lost every, you know, I lost all my stuff. I lost all my record. You know, I had a hurricane too. So I know what it's like. No, it was about, let's get you feeling the way you want to feel right now. Forget about me. That sense of mission, that commitment to it, that willingness to understand exactly what you said, that our problems are yeah. our problems and aren't necessarily, in fact, have more often than not nothing to do with the reason why we serve, yeah. is why you and I travel together on yeah. the Purpose Highway. Josh, this has been really moving. People are going to hear this, and they're going to want, want to learn more about you. How can they find you online? Uh, they can find me on Instagram, although I'm fair warning. I'm not the most active poster, but I do check my DMs constantly. Uh, uh, Skyre one at Skyre one forty on Instagram. Uh, anyone wants to shoot me an email, joshskyre at gmail.com. Uh, I'd love to hear from anyone and anybody who needs me.
And if someone wants to know about martial arts and they're inspired by your vision of it, where can they find out about that? Those same two, just reach out to me. Those same two places. You could look at brooklynbjj.com uh, and get in contact with me there. Uh, yeah, find me. I believe that the people that, the people that need us, find us. And the people that we need, we find them. And that's one of the miraculous beauties of life. And I think that's, that's, that is the destination on the purpose highway. That's mm -hmm. where that road leads to. It doesn't lead to a place. It leads to people. Yeah. Yep. The purpose highway and the destination is all just a state of mind. We're not driving on it. We're flying on it. <laughs> exactly. Josh, this has been absolutely wonderful. Thank you for your time. And for everyone Anytime. listening, we'll see you on the next episode of the purpose highway. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Join our community today at PurposeHighway.com and subscribe to get notified when new episodes go live. Scott Mason, checking out.